We're in John chapter one today. John chapter one, verses 29 through 34. Last week, we looked at John's testimony of who John is. And today, we're gonna look at John's testimony of who Jesus is. This verse in particular, chapter one, verse 29, uh, the second part reminds me of uh, Courtney's first Bible verse. It was Courtney's first Bible verse to memorize. How do you pick your child's first memory verse? I don't know, but what I wanted her to know is the most important person who ever lived and ever lives and the most important thing which he did. And so I would try to teach her with the hand motions. I don't know sign language. I'm a fan of sign language, but I don't know it. So I had to do the best I could. And so I would say, okay, Courtney, here's the way it works. Put your hand up like this. And she did. She sat in my lap like this. I said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so... We would do that, and she, she got it down, and she loved the hand motions. She was re- always ready. I, have for, I forgot the motions most of the time, and so we'd work through that and just talk about how amazing the Lord is and how awesome he is and, and what he did for us. You see, John one we we're going to look at verses 29 through 34 in just a moment, but just to camp for just a moment on verse 29, Gregory the, the Great he was a sixth century saint. He would say this, the Holy, Holy Scripture is a stream of running water where alike the elephant may swim and the lamb walk without losing its feet. I've said it before and I'll continue to beat the same drum because it's a good one. If you're having, and I hope you are having family devotions or devotions with your kids, really it's on the dad to take care of that. Moms, you certainly could play a big role as well. Use the Bible. There's many good children's books out there, many good um, Bible books, but also use the Bible. Make sure, encourage your kids to study the word, and even if they can't read, you can memorize with them, and it's good for you as well. Well, this is the word of God, John 1, through 34. The next day, he, meaning John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time today. I pray that you would just give me Uh, Wisdom, help me to cut a clear line through Scripture. Uh, Would you grant that your Spirit would change us to make us more like the person of Jesus Christ? In your kindness and mercy, would you also bring some who are not true believers? They've never, even though they know of Jesus as the Messiah and that, in fact, there is a sinful world, 
They've never fully come to embrace that the Messiah can be their Messiah today. And also, Lord, make them aware of their own sin. And would you grant them faith and repentance today, we pray. In your son's name, amen. The word behold, we don't use it that often. When was the last time you, you were at a game and you looked to your friend and said, behold? We don't use it. Um, we don't use the other word that's often used as well, lo. Instead, we're just boring and we say, look. Or if you're, if you're from the West Coast, you might say, dude. Um, that's what John not that last part, but John is pointing out, behold, look, it's the Lamb of God. Now, I know John refers to, uh, to Christ here in this, but which Old Testament sacrificial lamb is John alluding to? Have you ever considered that? Theologians have uh, debated this for years. I'll give you some options. When you think of a lamb of God or a lamb that is, that is sacrificed for somebody else, Perhaps one of the first ones to come to mind is Genesis 22. The lamb that God would provide as a substitute for Isaac. Love that story. Isaac said to his father as they're climbing up uh, the mountain, and God has already told Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, the son whom you love. And it's like he's drilling into him. This is the one that's gonna have to die and it should be sacrificed. Um, and so Abraham, it says early the next morning, by God's grace alone, he gets up and takes his son. And his son asks him at a certain point, he says, my father, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself. And that's exactly what he does then. And that's what he would one day do in the future. Is that the lamb that John is referring to, alluding to. Well, you might think of Exodus 12, the Passover lamb for Israel, where God said in this last plague, Pharaoh is going to not just let you go, he's gonna drive you out because I'm gonna take his firstborn son. And interesting in that passage, part of the reason, or really the reason why he said, I'm gonna take his firstborn son. And you know why? Because he's been messing with my firstborn son, which is Israel. And not only his son, but every firstborn of everybody in the land of Egypt that does not do what? Put blood on the lintel and the doorpost and thus the Passover lamb until you had to wait until the angel of death passed through. If you had the blood on the doorpost, you would pass, pass by. Uh, you might think of the Torah, just the, all five books of the Old Testament, first five books, the ancient sacrifices of the law, Listen to me, there would be millions upon millions of lambs that would be sacrificed over the 1,500 years that Israel did this. And you know, it was fascinating and sad. There was no power in those sacrifices to carry away sins. All they did was do what? Cover the sin until one day God would send his only begotten. Or you might think of finally Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Of all these passages, which one best describes John's phrase, the lamb of God? Well, you, you probably say all of them. And yet something important to note, context is so helpful in scripture. If you go, I don't know what that means, always look for the context. What's the closest context 
uh, to what John is referring to. Well, remember, we found out last week that John the Baptist is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Where do you find that passage? Isaiah. And so I would say Isaiah 53, 7 is what John is specifically referring to. The lamb that has led to slaughter, my own cousin, Jesus Christ, as we'll see. Notice what he does in verse 29. He takes away the sin of the world. Takes away You'll see this on the notes. Uh, It also means bears, to bear something. So in the the Greek, it means to take away this term arrow, but it also means to bear something. It really is probably meaning both, that as Jesus bore the sin of the world, he also took it away. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A couple of points about that. The Jewish people, as I mentioned, had been sacrificing since the Exodus, 1446 BC, for almost 1,500 years. I don't have the scientific um, information behind this, but can you imagine the pools upon pools upon pools of blood that had been drained for 1,500 years as the people would sacrifice these little lambs, not to mention the blood of bulls and goats as well. And yet, not one of them would take away sin. Here we have the sacrifice for the people's sins. Think about this. You're listening to John's words, and he doesn't just say, behold, the lamb, but he says, behold, the lamb who takes away. They would turn around and go, no, 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 no one takes away sin. No, no, this one does. This one does. Uh, Something else important to note is the second point is present tense, For us, even in the 21st century, Christ's sacrifice is never out of date. If Jesus should not return for another 4,000 years, then the the sins of the people 4,000 years ago are still uh, made covered, not just covered, but cleaned, borne away by a first century Jew. Wow. Never goes out of date. Sufficient for the sins of all time for his people. Let's look at another term. I'm telling you what, we could camp all day in verse 29. I won't, but we could because he says, takes away the sin. Does that bother you? From some of you grammar people, it should say sins of the world, shouldn't it? The Greek's very clear here. It's in the singular. So we see that the Lamb of God not just takes away our everyday sins that we've done for the rest of the past, present, and future, but also the one we were born with. And some of you say, I was, I was born a sinner? No, 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 sin, I'm a, I'm a sinner because I sin. And I would say, no, I mean, that's part of it. But you were actually born a sinner. The Puritans put it, they called it original sin. They're not the first ones that came up with this. But they would say this in this neat little ditty, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. So when God looks at Adam and he says, on the day you eat of that tree, you're going to die, die, says in the Hebrew. And you can imagine Adam scratching his head going, that sounds pretty bad, whatever that die thing is. Never experienced it before, didn't know what it was, but he knew it was bad. Well, do you think it just affected Adam? No. It affects everything that comes from Adam and Eve. So much so that Cain is the first murderer 
Abel is the first homicide. Congratulations, doesn't look like the garden anymore, does it? No, and it never has. And we are their same children. We have the sin of Adam in us. So Christ died for that. Christ is considered not the first Adam, but the second. Or some would say the last Adam. And so he fixes what Adam did in the garden. And he fixes all for whom God has called. So question, what was the root issue behind the first sin committed? Have you, have you studied this? You really should study Genesis 3. It wasn't like, it, I don't get the idea of stealing. He just wanted to steal it. No. Uh, Eve saw that it was good for, for, uh, for wisdom. And so she seems to be, not just seems to be, she definitely is conf- confused she sins, but his is rebellion, according to Romans 5. Hers, she was deceived. Either way, it was both wrong. But what was the root issue behind the sin committed? I would suggest this. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. Uh, Dr. Johnson, S. Lewis Johnson, an old Dallas seminary professor, puts it this way, and it's so good. I'm just going to read this whole quote. He says, when we think of sin, we tend to think of immorality, if somebody says, you're a sinner, you're like, ooh, what, what terminology comes to mind? What adjectives? He goes, you tend to think immorality. And if we are somewhat theologically minded, we tend to think of sin as being self, selfishness or sin as rebellion. Uh, I submit to you that the Bible, while it acknowledges that immorality and rebellion and selfishness is sin, it does not really define sin in those terms. The Bible is more acute than that. All of those things are the effects of sin. The effect of sin is immorality. The effect of sin is rebellion against God. One of the results of sin is selfishness. But sin in scripture is said to be unbelief. Sin is unbelief. In fact, the Lord Jesus said, I'm going to pray to the Father and he's going to send you another comforter and he's going to carry out a work to the, uh, he's going to carry out a work. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment of sin because they believe not on me. That's the essence of the sin of the world. Sin is unbelief. That's the reason Adam fell. Now, just to be clear, he's not saying that immorality, selfishness, rebellion is not, those aren't sins. They are sins. But what is the root of the tree? I think he's right. It's unbelief. Hebrews 3.12 says, in essence, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. So I would say the, fruit, the root of any sin, it's unbelief. Stay with me. Track with me here. Anxiety. Do we have any people that are here kind of prone towards anxiety? You're so anxious you don't want to raise your hand. I understand. Some of you are liars. I'm, I'm an anxious person as well. We could talk about lying as, as well. But for instance, anxiety. What's your problem with anxiety? You don't believe. You don't trust God as your sufficiency. You're not trusting him. You don't believe. How about anger? Have any angry people? Don't raise your hand. Um, you don't believe. When I say you don't believe, you don't trust God as the one who works out all things for your good. And so when those times don't seem to be working for your good, 
You get angry, you explode. You don't believe. How about something that many men, I'm going to intentionally look down here, struggle with? Pornography. It's a heinous sin. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys lives. And yet, men continue to engage in it, women as well, but in particular, men, what's your problem? You don't believe. You don't trust God as your joy, as your fulfillment. You've got to find it outside of God. You have to. You don't have to. But the reason why you feel like you have to is you don't believe. Now, there's many other factors, and some people are going, well, I don't know if that all squares. I think Scripture is saying it does square. I'm not certain how it all fits together, but you're not trusting the Lord, and that's what he wants more than anything in us. So, continuing on, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, what's the next phrase? Of the world, of the world. You see, not just Jews, Gentiles as well. The chosen people are not just the Jews. The Bible says this clear, but some chosen from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And he makes them into a kingdom of priests. I'm not discounting a future in gathering of Israel. I think that is the case. I believe that to be the case, according to Romans 11. But what I'm saying is that All who are in Christ Jesus are God's chosen people. And if you are in Christ today, you're his. Isaiah 53, 5, it says, He was raised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I'm gonna say one other aspect about this is that, folks, we're not talking universalism. That Jesus died on the cross and now we're all going to heaven. No, when he says of the world, he's saying some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, according to Revelation 5, 9. What am I saying? I'm saying that Christ's death on the cross was effectual. It wasn't conditional. When Christ died on the cross, he didn't make possible your salvation. When Christ died on the cross, he secured a bride that the father had selected for him. And the Spirit will one day draw them in and granting them faith and repentance and they will be born from above. He keeps bringing us in one at a time. Different ages, different times, different cultures. But if you are in Christ today, you are purchased on the cross. So why refer to Jesus by this title, Lamb of God? We don't know exactly, but we do know the people, were. what were they looking for? They were looking for a prophet, a kingly Messiah that would expel the Romans. Uh, There was no questions to John of who is going to come and deliver me from sin. You didn't see that last week, did you? Uh, Which is really most important. That's what they most needed. A.W. Pink, one of the commentators quotes, it was under these circumstances that the forerunner of Christ announced him as the Lamb of God, not as the Word of God, not as the Christ of God, but as the Lamb. It was the Spirit of God presenting the Lord Jesus to Israel in the very office and character in which they stood in deepest need of him. They would have welcomed him on the throne, but they must first accept him 
on the altar. You thought that was first century Jerusalem, didn't you? No. It's true for us today. Let me tell you what. If you go out and talk to your friends about Jesus Christ and talk to him what a great storyteller he is, people are going to amen that. Or if you might say, you know, Jesus is really the supreme example we should follow. Oh, you betcha. But you present him as the only sacrifice for your sins in order to be able to go to God one day? Mm-mm. Don't want that at all. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, points to Jesus as a uh, Lord, as the Lord, liar, or lunatic. It's been said in different ways throughout the history of Christianity, and it's, it's a helpful apologetic. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't secure the salvation of others. No, no apologetics does that. It's the gift of God if they believe. But what his point of it is, is, you know, next time you talk to somebody about Jesus and they'll go, you know, I believe Jesus was a really great teacher, or maybe he was a fantastic prophet. The things that he said, what a great example. You should say kindly, but firmly, actually, Scripture doesn't give that option. What do you mean? Well, remember, Jesus declared that he was the Son of God, the Son of God, Savior of the world. So who says those kind of things? <laughs> Unless he's the Lord or he's a liar. He just is flat out lying. Or he's a lunatic, David Koresh. He can't be a good prophet. He cannot be a good teacher. Good teachers don't declare themselves to be God. And Jesus does. So that's helpful. Lord, liar, or lunatic. Let's continue on to verse 30 and 31. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. If you were with us last week, John is reminding his hearers of his previous words. The man I will baptize ranks before me. That means he's higher honor than me because he was before me. Or he should have, I guess I would say, is. Jesus is eternal is what John is in essence saying. So here we find out why did John come baptizing? We talked about this last week. In no particular order, number one, he's coming to fulfill the Isaiah prophecy. He is the voice crying in the wilderness. Number two, he's going to call Israel to repentance. Number three, he's going to reveal the Messiah to Israel. But now for the first time, we find out something else, and only the book of John says this. The reason why John came baptizing is so that John himself would know who the Messiah is. And you go, wait a second, you mean John didn't know who the Messiah was? I think that's exactly what the text is saying. Verse 31, for this purpose, I came baptizing that he might be revealed to Israel. But then in the next verse, he'll say that I didn't know myself. So stay with me here. John did not know him is the, is the phrase that it's used. It's used twice in this whole passage and then it makes you question, wait, did John not know his cousin, Jesus? I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's saying is that he did not know Jesus was the Messiah. And now I'm looking in some of your eyes and I'm getting some pushback here because you go, that, that can't be right. Because remember Matthew where he tells Jesus, I, I know you should be baptizing me. Well, let's go there, can we? 
Matthew 3. Go ahead and go to Matthew 3. We'll just look at verse 13 through 15. Matthew 3, 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now stop there. Look up here. Fulfill all righteousness. What does that even mean? And I would be a bad teacher if I didn't at least do a quick excursion into that and then come right back. Fulfill all righteousness. Paul uses that term righteousness oftentimes by inspiration of the Spirit, of course, to, to regard our right standing before God. The only reason that you and I are not eviscerated one day, just completely annihilated um, in God's presence is because we have the righteousness of Christ. Um, we have a right standing before God. Is that what Jesus is saying here when he says it is fitting? Basically, it's fitting for me to be baptized by you to fulfill all righteousness. No, there's another definition and that is this. This fulfillment of all righteousness, it means conformity to God's will. Jesus looks at his cousin and he goes, John, this is God's will. Get over it, in essence. Um, Jesus Christ here is identifying with John's message and ministry of repentance. Jesus has nothing to repent of. Remember I told you last week when they would bring them up for baptism, there would be a time of confession. Jesus, you can imagine John's bringing Jesus there and Jesus just stands quietly. He has no sins to confess. And that's, you can imagine John at this point going, I, I can't do this. I should be baptized by you. And um, no, John, he's saying, I agree with your message and I agree with the ministry here. All right. Now, after Jesus says this, then he consented. Now, thus begs the question, going back to our previous point, did John not know before now that Jesus was the Messiah? I mean, what about the prophecies? Well, I would say this. You have to hold to all of Scripture here. So Matthew 3 is helpful to point out that John knew something very, his cousin is really different. He, he may have thought him to be a prophet, or, or maybe he was an, the most godly man he'd ever met, which actually he was. <laughs> and I think he had some understanding that I think this is the Messiah, but we don't know. Actually, John is the only gospel writers that tell us, we'll see in verse 32 and 33, this is the reason why, John, I'm sending you baptizing, that you'll know who the Messiah is with confirmity. Verse 32 and 33, let me show you. And John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him and I myself did not know him. Catch that again, he said it twice. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now remember in another, in Matthew it says, somebody's coming here and not always, I baptize with water, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John knows that that is the quintessential sign, that is the Messiah. And here we see it again in verse 33. This is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. So how will John know? 
Somehow God had told John at a particular time, there's gonna be the spirit that's gonna land on him and it's gonna remain on him. That's an important point. So let's talk about this dove. Why is that a dove? Have you ever questioned that? If you go to a Pentecostal or charismatic church, you see many times you won't see a cross, you'll see a dove and you're like, what is that? What is that about? Well, it's a, it's a picture of the spirit. Why is it a picture of the spirit? Well, you'll have to ask Jesus, because I don't know. Um, I, everything that I've read, you, you can't say for certain, this is the best that I've been able to come up with, is ancient Jewish interpreters of the scriptures considered the dove symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Even used the term uh, to speak of the Spirit of God as hovering over the waters before creation. Remember this in Genesis 1, 2? So... That's the term that they use. And so maybe God in his kindness said, the spirit will be a good indication that people know what I'm referring to. So did the Holy Spirit, another question we'll ask, did the Holy Spirit not show up in the life of Jesus until his baptism? That question helps reveal what's going on here. Like was Jesus, even though he's divine and human, he walked the earth until 30 something before the spirit came upon him? No, no. You people know scripture better than that. Isaiah 11 verse two says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, not just at his baptism, but his whole life. How was Jesus born? The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. So even from his conception, Jesus had the spirit of God. I love the way Basil of Caesarea in the fourth century puts it. He said, in essence, Jesus never was on his own. He had the Holy Spirit as his, quote, inseparable companion, in quotes, inseparable companion. As one of the commentators writes, no, what's going on at this baptism is the Spirit is descending upon Jesus with a new fullness he didn't have before. And the scriptures really play this out, don't they? After baptism, it says the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness and if you ever look at the wilderness, um, temptation is like, oh, how bad it was for Jesus. And certainly it was. You should remember this. Jesus isn't going into the wilderness on the defense. He's going on in the offense, right? He's going on into the desert in the offense here as he takes on Satan. Once he returns, Luke 4.14 says he returns in the power of the Spirit, we also say is that he comes straight into his hometown synagogue, Isaiah 61.1. He pulls open the scroll and he proclaims the, what? Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he came in a new fullness, the Spirit did, when it came upon Christ. Now we're getting into the deep um, end of the pool. And if y'all just hang out there for a moment, just tread water with me for a moment, because this is very helpful, I think, to understand exactly what Christ did for us. One of the commentators named David Mathis wrote a, uh, an article called, Did Jesus Need the Spirit? Does God need the Spirit of God? I mean, remember three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit? Did Jesus need the Spirit? Listen to what he writes. And, and lock the door, so don't leave yet, okay? The Spirit descends on him, meaning Christ, with new fullness for his unique calling. Jesus, the God-man, apparently needed the Spirit. 
the terms of the incarnation in honoring the fullness of humanity were that the second person of the Trinity did not immediately provide divine help and power to the human Christ. Rather, he did so immediately through the Spirit. Now, time out. I'm not crazy him using the phrase human Christ, but his point is he's trying to, like a good surgeon, how do you, how do, you do this? Talk about divine and humanity in one person. And what he's saying is actually said better by a guy named Mark Jones in his book called Puritan Theology, and he writes this. Christ's obedience in our place had to be real obedience. He did not, quote unquote, cheat by relying on his own divine nature while he acted as the second Adam. Do you see what he's getting at? Do you see what's happening here? Too many times when we read the story of Jesus and he's you know, fasting in the desert, he's going through tremendous pain and suffering on the, on the cross, we go, well, he's God. It's almost like he's got that card they can throw down anytime life is hard. That's not what the text is saying. The text is saying is Jesus Christ, the God man, when he took on our sins, when he became a man, he was fully man. He's also God, but he didn't take the God card, if you will, from time to time and just utilize that as ways to, to help out. No, he depended upon the spirit of God. Strangely enough, the same spirit that you and I have. I told you it's the deep end of the pool. But I think it's very helpful. Whereas the first Adam failed in the garden, the second Adam does not fail. He trusts the Lord. He's trusting the spirit of God, which is helping him along the whole way. And notice the spirit didn't just come upon him, but it remained on him. The Greek verb minnow, I told you this before, Minnow is a favorite word used for John. Um, You've ever gone out fishing, and I've I've mentioned before, you've gone out fishing, you've got all those minnows in the big tank that you get at a 7-Eleven. I don't have 7-Eleven. Anyway, they got them at certain stores. And there you go. And the guy will always go down, he said, oh, let me get you some minnows. And he'll, you know, get some off the top. Those minnows think they're going on a field trip. Ain't no field trip. Where are the safest minnows? Those who stay in the tank. They remain in the tank. And that's the term. It's helpful for me in the Greek to go, oh, they remain. So when Christ says remain, be like one of those little minnows at the bottom that doesn't want to get out of the tank. Stay with Christ. I digress. The Holy Spirit here remains with Jesus. He remains with him. So Jesus... is permanently indwelt by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And notice he gives the Holy Spirit to whomever he wills. And some of you are thinking, remain, what's the big deal? No, it's a huge deal. You have forgotten, ladies and gentlemen, one of the biggest blessings of being a New Testament saint. And that is this, the Holy Spirit remains on you and in you. Remember, David was the one who said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me after he has committed adultery and murder, stolen another man's wife, lied. And he says, he, had, he remembers what had happened to Saul before him. And it was a huge fear of David that the Lord would remove his spirit. 
King Saul, God removed his spirit from him. Samson, God removed the spirit from him. All of a sudden, Samson no longer had his power. And yet we see David's descendant, Jesus, never displeases the father, so the spirit will never leave him. Yet, don't you and I displease the Lord? You bet you we do. I'm not saying we don't have the righteousness of Christ upon us, but we sin all the time. Not all of our actions are pleasing to the Lord. And wouldn't displeasing God be enough reason for him to remove the Holy Spirit from us? Some denominations believe that. I think they're wrong for many reasons. Romans 8, 9, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the idea is we are in Christ. That's Paul's favorite designation for a Christian, in Christ. So the Holy Spirit secured for us is by Jesus Christ. And if we are in Christ and he has the spirit, guess who else has the spirit? And if the spirit cannot leave Christ, neither can it leave us. Not to mention the Holy Spirit is a down payment of our future physical resurrection inheritance, according to Ephesians 1.14. Finally, verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Interesting. John is directing you back to John 1.18 when I told you that Jesus is the exegesis of God. Have you ever wondered, what is, what is God like? I mean, what is he really like? Jesus tells you to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Some people think, well, yeah, they're kind of alike. No, they're exactly alike. He is the icon of God. He's the exact representation of God the Father. He is God. So we've got two groups of people in here today. I'm looking around. I cannot tell the difference between you right now. But there are two groups, I promise you. We're looking at believers and we're looking at unbelievers. Only God knows hearts. If you're a believer today, I will tell you this, with all this information, 1 Peter 1.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Note this, according to scripture, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. You have to believe it. I'm not saying you can never sin again. I'm not saying that. We don't teach perfectionism here. But we do have to tell you is that you don't have to go back to what you were. You can live differently. You have the Spirit of God in you. You can believe Since sin is a result of unbelief, learn from that father in Mark 9 who had the demonized son who says to Christ, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. What was Jesus' response? If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Be that man. Be that man who cries out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe I have the Holy Spirit within me because I have trusted in Christ alone for my salvation, but I look just like my unbelieving neighbor. Hey, if, if you're feeling that way today, in some, some ways that's an encouragement because as a believer, you need to be very aware that you are a big sinner till the day you die. Don't somehow think that you, have, you are gone from that. No, no. 
You're committing sins you're not even aware of. And yet at the same time, trust the Lord. He's gonna do his work in you. You need to believe. You need to trust his spirit. And if you're an unbeliever today, I would say what John says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. At this point, I think it's probably best to end with one of my favorite conversion stories, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century Baptist minister. I quote him often. Although his dad and grandfather were pastors and he grew up reading the rich theology of the Puritans, at age 15, Spurgeon was not a believer and was greatly troubled by his sins. In his autobiography, he writes the following, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship when I could go no further to my church I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, but they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose, At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that preachers should be instructed. But this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. That preacher began thus, my dear friends, he said, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now looking, don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to, need to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at their father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gotten to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked to me under the gallery, and I dare say with a few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart. He said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I I did, but I did not Uh, I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it it was a good blow, struck right home. 
He continued and said, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, and so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to be. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust in Christ and you shall be saved. Let me clarify one statement. Mental assent does not equal salvation. Spurgeon knew. He read the Puritans. He read his Bible. Spurgeon knew people are sinners. He needed to embrace, I am a sinner. My sin put Jesus on the cross. Spurgeon knew Jesus as the Savior and Lord who died and rose from the dead. He needed to embrace Jesus as my Savior my Lord. Shooting straight with y'all, can I? If you think today or maybe have thought for years that Jesus is the Savior and Lord and he saves sinners from sin, you have enough information right there to make paving stones for your coming descent to hell. You have enough right there because even the demons believe so the questions you close with would be this. Are you the sinner? Number two, did your sin put Jesus on the cross? And number three, is the Lord Jesus Christ your Savior and Lord? I pray he is. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray for anybody in here, Lord, that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that doesn't realize that their sin put him there, that they're condemned, they're going to hell, and it might happen today. Lord, would you grant salvation to them? Lord, would you help the rest of us that, that have believed, that you have given salvation to? Lord, would you help us to believe just the day-to-day -day things of life that the Holy Spirit is in us, He's changing us. He's making us more like you uh, through us. Dare I say, in spite of us. And Lord, our job is to just trust you, trust your work, follow your ways. And knowing that ultimately, Lord, you're the one who leads us on to eternal life. And we look forward to that day when Jesus rips the clouds open and we will see him as he is. In your son's name we pray it, amen.